0: Hi everyone, welcome to Season 7. Season 7? Session 7, probably. That's a promising start. It's a Thursday night, and I'm all in disarray. (laughs) I'm unaccustomed to broadcasting live on a Thursday, but this week we just had to push back. There were some things that could not be moved around, so unfortunately here we are late in the week. But that just means it's less time between now and the next time we reconvene to conclude Harry Potter. We're nearing the end of our seminar. Is what we're saying. (laughs) It's gonna be a lot of fun tonight. We have a ton of stuff to burn through. I'm already seeing here people in the YouTube chat, people here on Twitter. If you would like to join the conversation in the week ahead, if you're not watching this live and you would like to join the conversation at some point before this seminar concludes, or I guess even thereafter, who am I to stop you? Then you can do so on Twitter using the hashtag SWDMP, that is StoryWonk, Dear Mr. Potter, or Swadomp, or I guess Swadomp, depending on your Regional pronunciation. Uh, Or you can stop by the forum at forum.storywonk.com, where there is always fine conversation flowing. This is going to be a really interesting night tonight, I think. We've got a lot of material to get through. And as is usually the case, when there's a lot of plot, there's less texture to look at in the prose itself. There's less depth, perhaps. The more action, the more events are packed into a given space the less space for interpretation is left. So we're going to move rather quickly through some of it, but I'm going to pull out some of my favorite some of my favorite parts tonight. I have to say, the stuff in the Forbidden Forest with the centaurs, that is maybe my favorite stuff in the book. It's certainly up there for me. Um, I really like the way that, that Rowling negotiates that tonal shift. And we are going to be talking a lot about tonal shifts tonight. We're going to be talking a lot about transitions of all types, as I'm sure you noticed from the title of the seminar. We're looking tonight at thresholds. So before we begin, I wanted to spend just a little time on two words that I'm going to be using a lot in tonight's seminar, two words that I've used quite a lot through the seminar as a whole. I want to talk about thresholds and I want to talk about liminality. The threshold is the space that delineates one thing from another, quite simply. It's just the barrier between two spaces or tones or attitudes. It's the barrier between. Liminality is a slightly more complex idea. It is the property of being caught upon the threshold, of being caught betwixt and between, suspended in that moment of transition. Liminal moments can be fleeting, they can be over in an instant, or they can be suspended, particularly in fantasy stories. You can be caught between worlds in a neither-this-but-not-yet-that kind of way. Harry Potter, in the tradition of both ancient fairy stories and modern fantasy novels is very concerned with thresholds, with points of transition. As a coming-of-age tale, as a boarding school adventure, it is also very concerned with, with thresholds, with moments of liminality and the transition from one thing to the next. It is no coincidence, I think, that Harry as a baby is left upon a doorstep. I think that is very representative of the way that J.K. Rowling treats thresholds of all sorts, and we will see tonight. We're we're going to have a few in the first chapter that we're looking at tonight as we go into The Forbidden Forest, but then the back half in particular of our last chapter tonight is nothing but a series of thresholds, overcome in a a very purposeful, very architected kind of way. It's a fascinating part of the book. So, as I said, while there's perhaps not a lot of textual depth to analyze in some of this stuff tonight, there's a great deal of structural import to, to, to be examined. So, we talked, in particular, about the passing of thresholds when we arrived at Hogwarts, if you can remember that far back in the seminar session. We talked about the passing of thresholds when we moved on to Platform 9 and 3 quarters at King's Cross. And we talked even at the time about... The liminal state of journeying. You know, when they're on the Hogwarts Express, they are caught very much betwixt and between. They have left the Muggle world, but they haven't yet arrived in the Wizard world. When, of course, they arrive at the station, we have this series of marked and clearly delineated transitions. These, these, Almost elemental transitions as we first move up the rocky path in the darkness, as we move across the lake, as we move into the cave, as we move up the stairs, as we move to the very gate of Hogwarts itself. We have all of these crisply and cleanly demarcated thresholds. And we're going to see something very similar to that in the back half of tonight's reading. So in the chapters we're going to study tonight, We're going to see Harry and we're going to see the others transit a number of thresholds and spend some time in liminal states. We're also going to see the book as a whole transition to a darker, more adult tone. I've talked over the last couple of weeks here on the seminar about the British boarding school adventure part of Harry Potter and the ways in which that has been emphasized, the ways in which that has been allowed to come to the fore over the last couple of readings. And we really see a hard end to that tonight, but unlike the beginning of that passage of the book, when it arose from an absence of other things, here it is very purposefully overshadowed we move, we transition forcefully into darkness it 's a really fascinating it 's a really fascinating structural part of the book <laughs> not even structural structural implies a certain you know formidable passivity this is this is mechanical there is a a descent, you know, this is the elevator down into darkness, um, to, to use an entirely inappropriate modern metaphor, of course. I'm sure wizards have some version of elevators. Do we have any note of that <laughs> in Hogwarts? Do we have moving staircases? I forget. I know that there are some in the movies, I think, but, uh, yeah, yeah. All right, um, so the, the, the facing of thresholds, some of which are literal, some of which are metaphorical, some of which are, are, are guarded by guardians, some of which are overcome by the application of will or of particular skill or knowledge. The facing of these thresholds, the passing of these thresholds, and the turning away from these thresholds is going to be a major theme through these chapters. It's going to be a major theme through the final chapter two that we'll look at on Tuesday night. And we'll also, next week, study the mechanism of return, study perhaps the most... the most skillful in as much as it's the most condensed series of, of threshold transitions that we get in the entire book as Harry is returned from the supernatural realm to the mundane world of <laughs> the mundane world of Hogwarts of course and then ultimately to the mundane world of Privet Drive we'll get to all of that next week it is important to recognize right up front that transition and liminality are necessary components of childhood and of of, of the maturation process High school, even in the muggle world, is a series of thresholds, a series of structural, architected thresholds. These things have been formalized. You know where you are supposed to be and what mark you are supposed to hit in order to progress to the next thing. But all of them are suspended together, all of these formal and informal thresholds through high school, all of them are suspended together in one vast liminal state. The state of being between the innocence of childhood and the agency of adulthood. And this is something that we're going to address specifically in the reading tonight. Harry and the others have transitioned from the reactive simplicity of childhood, as represented by their first few weeks at Hogwarts, but they are not yet in possession of the the autonomy, of the active agency of adulthood. They are caught between when the rules prescribe a safe area for exploration and for conduct. This is one of the ways in which the boarding school adventure notion really serves Harry Potter. Those hard and fast rules that we discussed at length last week demarcate a safe space where Harry and the others can exercise a certain limited autonomy, though the risks of crossing those lines are, of course, (laughs) severe. We'll get to some of that tonight. Um, As children, they wouldn't have had the opportunity or they wouldn't have had the capability of helping Hagrid. If they were just children, they wouldn't have been able to help Hagrid get rid of the dragon. As adults, they would have been able to either ignore the rules, work around the rules, or at least reason with the rules. They could say, yes, wizards are not supposed to have dragons, but we're not wizards yet. Or, yes, wizards are not supposed to have dragons, but we're trying to get this one to safety. Can't you indulge in some mercy? We don't get that. We get the British boarding school adventure hard and fast rule. There's no attempt to reason with authority because within that fictional frame, authority cannot be reasoned with. They did what they had to do. The consequences await them. And this is the thing, I think, about liminality. Liminality can be empowering. And it can be liberating. To be neither one thing nor another can be an enormous source of power. But it's almost always horribly dangerous. You know, to be untethered from your world is to be vulnerable in a very profound way. And we're going to see just a little of that tonight. So let's catch up with everyone before we get into tonight's reading specifically. Before we begin chapter 15, I see everyone here on Twitter. (laughs) I see. Wow. Yes, yes, yes. Oh Sue is saying, uh, Liminal takes her back to her study of biology. Liminology studies uh, water systems interacting with their basins and the atmosphere. The boundaries between things. Yes, exactly. That that suspension between two states. Um, it is an enormously It's an enormously evocative and powerful idea, and the further you dig into elemental storytelling, into the very kind of archetypal foundations of of myth and of the most simple and functional narratives, the notion of liminality itself becomes vibrant. To liberate a hero from the restriction of his community, his culture, to free him from context, essentially, frees him to do amazing and impossible things, but also allows him to suffer (laughs) ridiculous, uh, ridiculous consequences. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Good, good, good. And I'm seeing here. (laughs) I think that Lance is taking me to task, uh, in the YouTube chat here. Cannot be reasoned with, with which you cannot reason Lance. Clearly you're absolutely right. Yes. (laughs) Good, good, good. Yeah and we're seeing all of yes all of these many many yeah all of these many many um discrete discrete types and stages of liminality that we embrace that to which we are exposed through adolescence and that is a theme that is going to be much more explicitly explored as we move past this first Harry Potter novel and into the rest of the series because the darkening of tone, the, the giving and, and consequences of agency and authority are going to become much more urgent and much more pressing, as they do, as we grow up ourselves. That is an inescapable part of this process of adolescence, this ongoing cycle of thresholds, of liminal states, and then the restoration of the, the, the new status quo, I guess. Yeah. All right. All right. Let's get into, with the company of just a little red wine, it's a hot night tonight. Uh, mm. Let us get into our reading for tonight. We begin chapter 15, uh, The Forbidden Forest, by picking up right where we left off last week. Harry and Hermione left the invisibility cloak at the top of the tower. They were caught by filch. They are deposited in McGonagall's study, where they wait nervously for her to show up, uh, let us open our first slide here tonight. Filch took them down to Professor McGonagall's study on the first floor, where they sat and waited without saying a word to each other. Hermione was trembling. Excuses, alibis, and wild cover-up stories chased each other around Harry's brain, each more feeble than the last. He couldn't see how they were going to get out of trouble this time. They were cornered. How could they have been so stupid as to forget The cloak. There was no reason on earth that Professor McGonagall would accept for their being out of bed and creeping around the school in the dead of night, let alone being up the tallest astronomy tower, which was out of bounds except for classes. Add Norbert and the Invisibility Cloak, and they might as well be packing their bags already. Had Harry thought that things couldn't have been worse? He was wrong. When Professor McGonagall appeared, she was leading Neville. Harry! Neville burst out the moment he saw the other two. I was trying to find you to warn you. I heard Malfoy saying he was going to catch you. He said you had a drag... Harry shook his head violently to shut Neville up, but Professor McGonagall had seen. She looked more likely to breathe fire than Norbert as she towered over the three of them. I would never have believed it of any of you. Mr. Filch said you were up in the astronomy tower. It's one o'clock in the morning. Explain yourselves. It was the first time Hermione had ever failed to answer a teacher's question. She was staring at her slippers, as still as a statue. "'I think I've got a good idea what's been going on,' said Professor McGonagall. "'It doesn't take a genius to work it out. You've fed Draco Malfoy some cock-and-bull story about a dragon, trying to get him out of bed and into trouble. I've already caught him. I suppose you think it's funny that Longbottom here heard the story and believed it too?' couple of quick things, I suppose. Note the switch to the narrative voice, the the now more unfamiliar than ever narrative voice in the second paragraph there. We don't get much from the narrator in this part of the book, but that is a nice bit of irony. That is the, had Harry thought that things couldn't have been worse? He was wrong. We get this lovely sense of foreboding and foreshadowing, but we're not strictly in that POV tonight. It's interesting that Harry adds the note to about the Invisibility Cloak. I don't know where I come down on this. I don't know exactly what we're supposed to infer from his his statement that add Norbert and the Invisibility Cloak and they might as well be packing their bags already. Is the possession of the Invisibility Cloak a punishable offence? Is the use of such a cloak somehow making things worse? Surely the thing of the thing is the punishable offence, the doing of of uh, the commission of the crime here is the punishable offense, rather than the means by which that thing is done. That absolutely adheres to this idea that the rules are hard and fast, but can be circumvented. Would it really be worse if they'd used the invisibility cloak? The most interesting thing here, though, as I cancel my slide prematurely for once, (laughs) um, for me, the most interesting thing here is Neville's reaction and the consequences of that reaction. Neville immediately gives up the ghost. He immediately starts telling Harry the story that Harry already knows, and McGonagall seems to alight upon it. And I want to ask you this question. What is happening here? On the one hand, this could be McGonagall exercising a certain creativity, Looking at things from a certain perspective, choosing, most importantly, to look at things from a certain perspective in order to ease the punishment. If she knows the full truth that Harry and Hermione were smuggling a dragon, she would presumably be compelled to expel them. So instead, she alights purposefully, consciously, upon an excuse that allows her to minimize the damage to these students. Or is there something more subtle going on here? Is this a moment of eucatastrophe? Is this a function of Neville's guileless simplicity? Some would say idiocy. (laughs) Is this a function of Neville's openness? He immediately starts to express himself, and McGonagall, in a eucatastrophic moment, takes that as truth and spins this narrative herself. Is McGonagall aware of the truth or not? What do you think? Yeah. Yes, Chris asks, in McGonagall's narrative, why would Harry and Hermione have snuck out too? To chase down Neville or to witness Draco's downfall? Uh, I think it's clear that she's assuming the latter of the two. But yeah, it's an interesting question. Yes, yes, yes. And Robbie raises the, Robbie raises the idea that using the cloak would indicate a certain premeditation in the commission of this this singular crime against the rules of Hogwarts. That's a very interesting point, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, there's a strong possibility there. Um, yes, and McGiggleCutie pulls out on Twitter here, one of the reasons that makes me think that this is a play by McGonagall, that she is fully aware of what happened, and provides Harry this convenient cover story, so that she doesn't have to expel him and Hermione and, you know, everyone else involved. One of the reasons that I believe that is indicated in the text is that she gives Malfoy only 20 points. She she deducts only 20 points from Slytherin for finding Malfoy in the hallways, but takes 50 points from Harry and Hermione, which you could kind of understand, but also from Neville. That makes me wonder if this is an extreme punishment far better than the alternative, certainly, but this is an extreme punishment designed to forestall any further investigation. This is such a severe punishment that these kids are just going to shut up and never dare breathe a word of it again. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder. And of course, we had that moment back at the Christmas party, of that that, uh, intimate moment between Hagrid and Professor McGonagall, which makes me wonder how much she is protecting him, too. Perhaps an intimate moment is overstating it just a little. That's just my fan fiction. (laughs) Kay says that she thinks she knows this is preemptive punishment to avoid the more terrible result. Yes. Yeah. Maya asks, I wonder how she would have reacted if the roles were switched. Oh, that's an interesting thought experiment, isn't it? Well, of course, the roles would never have been actually switched because Malfoy would never have agreed to illicitly smuggle a dragon to the top of the astronomy tower to help it escape and to pre- prote- uh, excuse me to protect his friend so it is possible that despite their egregious bout of rule breaking Harry and Hermione and to a certain extent Neville are being shown a kindness you know yeah the problem is that we don't have a clear sense of exactly how well enforced these rules actually are. We don't know for sure what the irrevocable consequence would be. This is part of my problem with the whole Dragon chapter. Um, it kind of comes out of nowhere. We spend a lot of time informing the consequences. You know, We spend a lot of time being told that this is serious business, but we don't actually see any of the implications of that on the page. So it's difficult to be sure, but either way, it's an interesting moment. Yeah, good, good, good. So McGonagall finally deducts 150 points from Gryffindor for this egregious breaking of the rules, and she sends them back to the Gryffindor dorm. Doesn't seem quite fair that she uh, that she takes the 50 points from Neville too, but hey. Um... The next morning, Harry and the others feel the sharp lash of public condemnation. We are told that even the Hufflepuffs and the Ravenclaws have turned against Harry, which must be galling. It also, though, I think, functionally emphasizes the idea that the conflict, the house conflict, you know, this, this formalized battlefield between these two opposed forces of virtue and vice that this formalized conflict really does exist between Gryffindor and Slytherin, and that Hufflepuff and Ravenclaw are just also rants. That's not always going to be true. We're going to explore these ideas in a much more complex and sophisticated way in the books to come, but certainly here, to be Hufflepuff or to be Ravenclaw is to be just absolutely sidelined. There is no role for you here, not just in the functioning of the plot, but in the thematic conflict that has been arranged here. As I said, we'll, we'll return to that in the future, but right now, in the span of this book, that's exactly how it works. And remembering that may, you know, ease the bitter pill of the final movement of that conflict, uh, which we'll look at next week. <laughs> the, the the rank injustice that we arrive at next week, yeah. <laughs> um, in response to the this new grim opprobrium. Harry and the others simply double down on their studies, focusing on the end-of-year exams. Finally, one week before the exams begin, and judging from the calendar that we worked out last week, this is two weeks after being caught coming down from the astronomy tower, Harry overhears Quirrell finally surrender to some dark force and flee out of an unused classroom. A tiny beat here, a fleeting moment, but once again we are forced to wonder at the convenience at the contrivance of Harry happening to be outside of a place at just the right moment. And he's making his way back from the library, so presumably this is a route that he knows well, but he's also passing by unused classrooms, so this could be, you know, a desolate, a, 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 less, frequ- a, a less frequently used part of Hogwarts, it's difficult to be sure, but once again we find Harry being in just the right place, at just the right time, and we have to wonder to what degree he is being led by Hogwarts. Whatever that means. There was some interesting conversation on the forum this last week about the nature of sentience, if if we're attributing sentience to Hogwarts, to the degree to which Hogwarts is actually manifesting purposeful change, the degree to which Hogwarts is actually guiding Harry. There was some interesting speculation about that on the forum. As ever, if you're interested in this type of conversation, I urge you to go and join the Storywonk forum, forum forum.storywonk.com. Everybody there is incredibly smart and nice, and and all the conversations are worth having. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, Jay on Twitter says, don't even get me started on the last chapter. Injustice, it irritates me to this day. Me too. Honestly, me too. It, It seems... It seems so profoundly out of character, and there's no need for it. There's no need to architect things in such a way as to force that final twist. Unless you really do see Hufflepuff and Ravenclaw as being peripheral houses, that they are not a part of that conflict. But that undercuts this great notion of, you know, complementary virtues of this this long and illustrious history of competition. For all that is said about the four houses of Hogwarts, in the first book, there may as well only be two. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, and Janine asks, What do you call a group of Hufflepuffs? A nice of Hufflepuffs? A kindness? Interesting. Yeah. A brunch. A brunch of Hufflepuffs. (laughs) And a, a, I don't know, a basement of Ravenclaw's, um, yeah, a study group of Ravenclaw's. <laughs> and McGiggie says, "So Fred and George, losers of many points in their school history, are also cranky with Harry." Yeah, we really do emphasize that this is this is a unprecedented, or at least almost unprecedented, um, point deduction in Hogwarts history. This really is such an excessive and epochal, you know, um, change in Gryffindor's fortunes that you really have to wonder about McGonagall. You really have to question whether or not this is, whether or not this is an appropriate retribution, whether this is, you know, a, a just response, or this is actually a deliberately overplayed hand in order to preserve Harry and Hermione from a far worse fate. Yeah. Good. A murder of Ravenclaw, says Lance. Of course it would be a murder of Ravenclaw. <laughs> Excellent. And Jennifer says, what would have been so bad about Slytherin winning the House Cup anyway, I mean, if they had earned it? That is an excellent question. Okay, we'll put a pin in that. We will definitely come back to that next week. There's, there's a great deal to talk about next week. Um, yes, yes. Yeah. And I will say, you know, for all that the House stuff is, is lightly treated in this book, I do think that it is... Hmm, it's less purposefully explored than it is allowed to blossom. You know, it it kind of takes on a depth of its own as we move into the future books um before being effectively sidelined completely of course you know we're not going to spend the entire series of harry potter dealing with you know the the house cup um in fact i think it's only the first three i'm not even sure it's, it's mentioned after that but yeah lots to think about so the next morning oh in fact no before we get to that um Yes, we, we just had Harry, and I'm jumping ahead in my notes. This is a terrible thing. Harry overhears Quirrell finally surrender to some dark force. I was speculating, of course, about Hogwarts playing some small part in leading Harry toward that disused classroom at just the right time. Harry assumes that Snape has finally coerced the solution to Quirrell's part of the protective wards around the Philosopher's Stone out of him, and though he's promised himself that he won't meddle, see how long that lasts, he immediately runs back to Ron and Hermione with the news. Ron wants to jump back into adventure, Immediately Hermione wants to go to Dumbledore immediately once again demonstrating this this power trio relationship Ron is once again all active. He represents the 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 pathos, you know, he represents the action while uh, while Hermione represents the logos, she represents the rationality, you know. This is the clear conflict between the two of them, the conflict that is usually unified by Harry, a unification that we will see in powerful effect in the second half of tonight's reading. Here, though, Harry chooses not to lead. Here, though, Harry sets aside, for perhaps the first time in the book, the great Gryffindor virtue of bravery. It is interesting that in this part of the book, we set aside bravery as well no let me reframe that just a little we set aside the the conscious exploration of bravery as a virtue we're going to not pay a great deal of attention to that as we move forward here but it is always going to be burning and we're going to have one very conspicuous uh mention of of harry's bravery toward the end of tonight's read so once again we find ourselves in this position where harry is the fulcrum he is the the prism that, that focuses these disparate energies and unifies them, except here he chooses not to. The next morning, Harry and Hermione receive their notes about detention, though there's precious little to indicate why they would have to wait two weeks for uh detention. Hogwarts is either, I guess, a, a very well behaved school, which doesn't seem to be the case since we've seen the influence of the Weasley twins. Or McGonagall may, in fact, be waiting for something. Once again, we have this possible intimation that McGonagall is waiting for something in particular before she hands out these detention slips. Harry and Hermione meet with Filch, who tells them they'll be going into the Forbidden Forest. Oh, and of course, in the company of Malfoy, too. He also tells them that they may not survive. Finally, Hagrid arrives and they pass him over. Sorry, Filch passes them over into Hagrid's care. Hagrid came striding out toward them in the dark, Fang at his heel. He was carrying his large crossbow and a quiver of arrows hung over his shoulder. Bad time, he said. I've been waiting for half an hour already. All right, Harry, Hermione? I shouldn't be too friendly to them, Hagrid, said Filch coldly. They're here to be punished, after all. That's why you're late, is it, said Hagrid, frowning at Filch. Been lecturing them, eh? It's not your place to do that. You've done your bit. I'll take over from here. I'll be back at dawn, said Filch, for what's left of them, he added nastily. And he turned and started back toward the castle, his lamp bobbing away in the darkness. Malfoy now turned to Hagrid. I'm not going into that forest, he said. And Harry was pleased to hear the note of panic in his voice. You are if you want to stay at Hogwarts, said Hagrid fiercely. You've done wrong and now you've got to pay for it. But this is servant stuff. It's not for students to do. I thought it would be copying lines or something. If my father knew I was doing this, he'd... Tell you how it is at Hogwarts, Hagrid growled. Copying lines. What good's that to anyone? You'll do something useful, or you'll get at. If you think your father'd rather you were expelled, then get back off to the castle and pack. Go on. Malfoy didn't move. He looked at Hagrid furiously, but then dropped his gaze. Right then, said Hagrid. Now... Listen carefully, because it's dangerous what we're going to do tonight, and I don't want no one taking risks. Follow me over here a moment. Interesting take on punishment at Hogwarts. (laughs) I like that we don't even try to cover for the fact that Hagrid dislikes Malfoy. Or yet that Hagrid knows perfectly well that Harry and Hermione are in trouble for helping him deal with the the Norbert problem. All the same, though, he does seem to want to treat Malfoy fairly. So what is the virtue, in the context of all we've seen so far, of this kind of, (laughs) I guess you'd call it community service detention? It makes sense for Hagrid, I think. Who was, after all, expelled and then allowed to stick around Hogwarts as long as he did something useful. That makes sense coming from him, this idea that, that... Writing lines doesn't accomplish anything. If you want to make up for what you've done, if you want to atone, then you need to actually take action. That seems very fitting for Hagrid's worldview. But Hagrid at the same time doesn't seem particularly disdainful, disdainful excuse me, of academics. He doesn't seem particularly disdainful of the school, the structure as a whole. This is this is something different. This is Redemption by action in the dark, away from the school, out of a familiar context. We are in the midst of a threshold transition. And Janine asks on Twitter here Does Hagrid's position count as a liminal one? Hagrid exists outside of the school, yet attached to the school. So, in a sense, yes. The most liminal part, I think, of Hagrid's existence is actually the way that he serves as a barrier himself, the way that he serves, perhaps a barrier is the wrong way to put that, he serves more as a, a point of interaction, an axis of interaction almost, between Hogwarts and the forest, and in a sense between the civilized you know, academia, the, the, the gleaming ivory towers of Hogwarts, and the 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 wild unfettered wizarding world certainly seems as though he performs some useful function in that space there's something muscular to hagrid not not just his physical form of course but there's something something more elemental about hagrid and about the way that he is well this is what i said earlier right liminality frees you up being caught between being neither one thing nor another being freed from your context allows you to do things that you wouldn't have been able to do before and you won't be able to do if you complete this threshold transition, but it also makes you vulnerable. And Hagrid is, of course, profoundly vulnerable. Not perhaps in a physical sense, but in a social sense. It must be, or at least must have been, you get the sense that I guess he's reconciled to it now, but it must have been very difficult to be Hagrid when he was expelled from Hogwarts. It must have been very difficult for him to become the man that he has become. I think that there is a reason that he devotes himself to two things. He devotes himself primarily to the the care and the protection of the animals in his custody, and he devotes himself unwaveringly to Dumbledore. I think that those things are more than just virtues i think that those things are more than just you know good qualities of hagrid's character i think that they are things that he clings to in part at least to resolve that own to resolve his own kind of wandering liminality yeah yeah good (laughs) Yes, yes. Uh, Jay says, you can dislike a person and treat them fairly. It's fair, and Hagrid is a fair person. Yes, Hagrid is absolutely a fair person. Yeah. Yeah, It's good. Oh, and, and, and Kay says, Hagrid is Cerberus. Well, we're going to talk a little about Cerberus, of course, uh, and about the way that these transitions are handled, these, these um, particularly mythic transitions. You know, we are going to see some characters in the very near future uh, defeat a three-headed dog and pass into the underworld, it's tough to not read, you know, some kind of, of metaphorical transition into that, isn't it? Yeah. Good, good, good. Scott says, in Hagrid's defense, Malfoy says that the, the doing of this work is servant stuff. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think Hagrid is actually more than fair to Malfoy. Um, and he's, he's, as I said, you know, Hagrid is well aware why Hermione and Harry have been given this detention. But he also doesn't go easy on that. He really is, I think, fundamentally fair. You even get that sense all the way back at the beginning of the book. You even get that sense when he visits the hut on the rock, you know? He's frustrated by the Dursleys. He's disgusted, in a way, by the Dursleys. But it's not the kind of rank disgust that you would have towards someone who you thought was fundamentally unworthy. Their actions have rendered them worthy of his distaste. Hagrid, I think is just a solidly good guy when he's not being ruined for the purposes of plot when we don't spend a lot of time with him being particularly stupid as we did last week, but that yes, I know is my personal is my personal thing um, <laughs> uh, so yes yes yes, good, good. And of course, throughout all of this, you know, we're 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 continuing to foreshadow our major transition for this evening, or our major transition of this chapter, at least the entering into the Forbidden Forest, which is in a sense a greater transition in and of itself than God, than perhaps any we've seen to date. We'll we'll talk about the exact nature of the Forbidden Forest and that transition away from Hogwarts in in just a few minutes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um So we learn that something in the forest is hunting unicorns, and we split up into teams to explore. We are forced to address Hagrid's wisdom in going with Harry and Hermione and leaving Malfoy, Fang, and Neville to wander the forest alone. This decision is almost too big and obviously silly, obviously foolish to even be worthy of comment. It's a piece of plot mechanics. It's exactly the kind of plot mechanic that in other parts of the book is is provided sufficient justification that it doesn't seem conspicuous you know here all we have is is malfoy wanting for no good reason that i can see to go with the dog and hagrid deciding right up front yes and the best person to accompany malfoy and fang is clearly neville of of course you definitely wouldn't put harry in charge because he can stand up to malfoy and you definitely wouldn't put hermione the responsible one in charge would you it's it's a plot mechanic. It does what it has to do so that we can get where we need to go. When you read it carefully, yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, yes. Good. Oh, and 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 let's note too, very quickly here. We get the confirmation that both unicorns and werewolves are real in the wizarding world, as of course we now know are dragons. This is this is further evidence when we had dragons confronted before. And we had the idea that there are two, in fact, resident British dragons. You know, two two species of dragons which are common, or at least, you know, possible um, in Britain. There was still the sense that they were rare. There was still the sense that they were special. You know, creatures. In the course of the next few pages though we're going to have confirmation passive confirmation that werewolves exist certainly but absolute rock solid confirmation that both unicorns and centaurs excuse me unicorns and centaurs exist not 5 minutes from the the, the walls of Hogwarts this is i think further evidence of a great distance between the muggle world and the wizarding world this is proof well it's proof of one of two things it's either proof that the wizarding world is more sequestered in the span of this first book, that it is more sequestered, that that Hogwarts is, as we possibly discussed before, not actually contiguous with the real world. It's not actually physically connected to the real world in the way that you would expect it to be connected. That is to say, you can get to Hogwarts, you know, from the the train station there. But if you just went off in another direction, you wouldn't return to the Muggle world. This is more like Hogwarts being... You know the realm of fairy, rather than being just a secluded you know valley somewhere in Scotland. Or the alternative to that is the inevitable conclusion that the Muggle world is perhaps not as safe from the Wizarding world as we thought, as we have been led to believe. You know, we have this this very vague allusion to to Ministry of Magic men in black agents going around with their little red neuralizer pen, blanking Muggle memories. to to prevent them from remembering that they've had run-ins with dragons, are they doing that just all the time for unicorns too, for centaurs too, for all the various mythical and fantastical beasts, if you will, uh, of the wizarding world? It's it's an interesting point, I think, of speculation, and, and one that will be resolved in the future in a way that is not entirely harmonious with our understanding as it's established in this first book. These are the things that J.K. Rowling will retcon. These are the things that she will change her mind about as she writes the later volumes, and good for her. It is far better for her to retcon these things in the pursuit of an interesting and full and rich and developed story than it is for her to be hamstrung by these incidental details of world-building. You know? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Garrett says in the YouTube chat the only more obvious plotting is Fred and Daphne leaving behind Velma, Shaggy and Scooby-Doo yes, yes and of course we are going to have a kind of uh, a mask removal scene at the end of this book you really could now that I think of it you really could recast Harry Potter as a Scooby-Doo mystery get on that, Someone someone who has more artistic talent than I have Get right on. I'm sure it's on Tumblr already. Hagrid leads our heroes out through the forest and then drags them behind a tree when they hear a mysterious sound. A mysterious, a mysterious, unknowable sound that is described using the very specific and accurate simile of a cloak slithering along the ground. Finally, we run into something. Someone. Absolutely new. I pull this slide here. They walked more slowly ears straining for the faintest sound. Suddenly, in a clearing ahead, something definitely moved. Who's there? Hagrid called. Show yourself! I'm armed! And into the clearing came... Was it a man or a horse? To the waist, a man with red hair and beard, but below that was a horse's gleaming chestnut body with a long reddish tail. Harry and Hermione's jaws dropped. Oh, it's you, Ronan, said Hagrid in relief. How are you? He walked forward and shook the centaur's hand. Good evening to you, Hagrid, said Ronan. He had a deep, sorrowful voice. Were you going to shoot me? Can't be too careful, Ronan, said Hagrid, patting his crossbow. There's up bad loose in this forest. This is Harry Potter and Hermione Granger, by the way. Students up at the school. And this is Ronan, you two. He's a centaur. We'd noticed, said Hermione, faintly. Good evening, said Ronan. "'Students, are you? And do you learn much up at the school?' "'Um, a bit,' said Hermione, timidly. "'A bit. Well, that's something.' Ronan sighed. He flung back his head and stared at the sky. "'Mars is bright tonight.' "'Yeah,' said Hagrid, glancing up, too. "'Listen, I'm glad we've run into you, Ronan, "'cause there's a unicorn been hurt. You seen anything?' Ronan didn't answer immediately. He stared unblinkingly upward, then sighed again. "'Always the innocent are the first victims,' he said. "'So it has been for ages past. So it is now.' "'Yeah,' said Hagrid. "'But have you seen anything, Ronan? Anything unusual?' "'Mars is bright tonight,' Ronan repeated, while Hagrid watched him impatiently. "'Unusually bright.' gotta tell you gotta tell you i love the centaurs (laughs) it's a really strong moment we crossed the threshold when we arrived at the forest of course there is the the mechanical act of of crossing the threshold between not forest and forest but this is the proof that we have passed through we are in a sense fully transitioned from but we're also here We're also here in something of, I think, a a liminal interregnum between Harry's quote unquote real experiences. This feels as different from Hogwarts as Hogwarts did from Privet Drive. There is here the profound sense of a different presence, older perhaps, and, and certainly focused on different things. We get this beat here with Ronan, we'll have another few beats with the centaurs. The thing that really catches my attention here, though, is the way that Ronan answers Hagrid's questions. And I think from a certain point of view, he does seem to be genuinely answering them. When Hagrid asks if he knows anything about the unicorn being hurt, Ronan says that the innocent are the first victims. And when the question is repeated, he replies that Mars is unusually bright. Mars, of course, was named for the the Roman god of war and farming, It's not an undue omen, considering what we learn about what is occurring in the Forbidden Forest. It also connects, of course, with the idea that Harry and Hermione are only here being, you know, disciplined for their rebellious ways because they climbed the Astronomy Tower of Hogwarts. In the last place, though, there is here a sense of omen and of... Divination, and we get that explored in the pages ahead, an older kind of wisdom, very different from the books and the accoutrements of the wizarding world. There is a sense that wizards look down in minute detail to study when they want to find wisdom. Centaurs, it would seem, look up. What do you think of that? What do you make of all of that? I really like, I really like that passage. And looking at that response, Mars is bright. And it is, I completely get Hagrid's frustration. You know, if this guy is just, you know, the kind of, yeah, goth philosophy student (laughs) who wants to just, you know, doesn't want to engage meaningfully, he instead wants to sound deep and soulful. And then I can completely appreciate Hagrid's frustration, but there is a way of reading this wherein Ronan is actually giving Hagrid from a certain point of view, perfectly clear and acute answers. Certainly answers that will fit what we are about to learn and discover here in the Forbidden Forest. Yeah, yeah. Jennifer says centaurs are totally ants who happen to talk and walk faster. Luckily, everyone walks and talks faster than the ants. Yeah. <laughs> Alan says all that to say that the centaurs barely seem to touch reality. That is a beautifully put observation, Alan. Yeah, I think you're onto something there. There is a... There is a distance between them. You know, they manage to make... J.K. Rowling manages to make, within the span of this single page, she manages to make the centaurs as removed from the wizards as it is possible to be, but still part of the same continuum. She manages to make the mundanity of books and scrolls and spells and wands and and house cups and quidditch she manages to make that look completely parochial and mundane she manages to make it look just like the muggle world must look to wizards except i guess without the romance i keep forgetting that there's the romance of the muggle world yeah yeah good all right um so the centaur bane appears uh and when questioned i'll I'll, Resist the urge to do my bane voice from Batman. Um, when questioned about the unicorn, he repeats Ronan's observation, and I, I think you know when we hit that repetition, when we hit that that, when we return around, when we when we circle back to that that observation that Mars is unusually bright, it it is clear to me. I think that it is not the non sequitur that Hagrid takes it to be. It is actually a fairly blunt declaration. I think that that yes, there is something, um, there is a force afoot, and moreover. It is the, it is representative of the the opening of new conflict, that this is the first, you know, we we have this line that, that innocents are the first to suffer. Innocents are the first victims. And I think that those words are purposeful. I really love it. <laughs> I think it's a great part. Yeah. Um, they leave the centaurs behind and we learn that there are, in Hagrid's words, a fair few of them in the forest, but we don't get any more specifics and we won't get that many more specifics over the entire run of Harry Potter. There are, there are too few explorations of the centaur word, world, excuse me, which I understand because you need to do a series, you know, just like Harry Potter from the other side. I don't know instead we are immediately distracted by the emergency flare from the other group and hagrid leaves hermione and harry behind to go to investigate he returns quickly having discovered that to absolutely no one's surprise malfoy goaded neville into a fearful response hagrid switches out the teams sending harry with malfoy and apologizing for it a very human moment from hagrid there um so harry and oh oh one thing before harry and draco push on into the forest A tiny little detail because I've been keeping track of some of the references to the works of J.R.R. Tolkien through the span of Harry Potter. Quick observation here that when Hagrid goes off to rescue Malfoy and Neville, he tells Harry and Hermione to remain staunchly on the path, which reminded me of the path through Mirkwood, the forest path through Mirkwood in uh, The Hobbit. Um, There are two paths through Mirkwood in The Hobbit. The first is the Old Forest Road, which never actually appears. That was the intended route of Thorin, Oakenshield, and company, but they were steered away from it by their encounter with the goblins. So instead, they end up, thanks to Beorn's guidance at the other route, the route that they originally intended to take, and this is a very kind of quiet, kind of rippling echo of Eucatastrophe through the book, the route that they intended to take has in fact fallen under the sway of the necromancer at Dol Guldur. So it would have been had their plans remained unchanged, it would have been a phenomenally dangerous route for them to have taken. So they were they were fortunately, you know, uh, reoriented on the path. and instead, they take this path through the forest of Murkwood, a path upon which they are completely safe. They are protected by elven magics. And given the superficially similarity between the elves and the centaurs of Harry Potter, I think we can see some of that same intent there. It is only when the dwarves stray from the path uh, to to shoot the deer that they end up fighting spiders and, and ending up in the halls of the Elven King. But that's a story for another time. That's a story for a future seminar, I'm sure. I'm sure. A minor bit of resonance there between the Hobbit and Harry Potter. So Harry and Draco push on further into the forest. They walk for half an hour before they find, almost inevitably because who else is going to find it, the body of a unicorn And we have this slide. Harry had taken one step toward it when a slithering sound made him freeze where he stood. A bush on the edge of the clearing quivered. Then out of the shadows, a hooded figure came crawling across the ground like some stalking beast. Harry, Malfoy, and Fang stood transfixed. The cloaked figure reached the unicorn, lowered its head over the wound in the animal's side, and began to drink its blood. Ah! Malfoy let out a terrible scream and bolted, and so did Fang. The hooded figure raised its head and looked right at Harry. Unicorn blood was dribbling down its front. It got to its feet and came swiftly toward Harry. He couldn't move for fear. Then a pain like he'd never felt before pierced his head. It was as though his scar were on fire. Half-blinded, he staggered backward. He heard hooves behind him, galloping, and something jumped clean over Harry, charging at the figure. The pain in Harry's head was so bad that he fell to his knees. It took a minute or two to pass. When he looked up, the figure had gone. A centaur was standing over him. Not Ronan or Bane. This one looked younger. He had white blonde hair and a palomino body. Are you all right? said the centaur, pulling Harry to his feet. Yes, thank you. What was that? The centaur didn't answer. He had astonishingly blue eyes like pale sapphires. He looked carefully at Harry, his eyes lingering on the scar that stood out, livid on Harry's forehead. <sighs> After speculating about Hagrid's questions to Rona, <laughs> it is somewhat tempting to read this centaur, Firenze's answer, in the same way, Harry asks, what was that? And Franze looks at his scar. From a certain point of view, if we take that as an answer, that is some serious foreshadowing. (laughs) That is some, no messing around. That is some, some uh, some pretty specific foreshadowing, if we take that as an actual answer to the question. Frenzy introduces himself he tells Bane and Ronan that he has to get Harry out of the forest and also that there's something dark within the forest that compels him to ally himself with humans if he must and it's only when they're a good distance away that Frenzy gives Harry some important information Let's switch out to the other slide Harry Potter Do you know what unicorn blood is used for? No, said Harry, startled by the odd question. We've only used the horn and tail hair in potions. That is because it is a monstrous thing to slay a unicorn, said Firenze. Only one who has nothing to lose and everything to gain would commit such a crime. The blood of a unicorn will keep you alive, even if you are an inch from death, but at a terrible price. You have slain something pure and defenceless to save yourself, and you will have but a half life a cursed life from the moment the blood touches your lips. Harry stared at the back of Ferenzi's head, which was dappled silver in the moonlight, but who'd be that desperate? He wondered aloud, if you're going to be cursed forever, death's better, isn't it? It is Ferennzi agreed. Unless all you need is to stay alive long enough to drink something else. Something that will bring you back to full strength and power. Something that will mean that you can never die. Mr. Potter, do you know what is hidden in the school at this very moment? The Sorcerer's Stone. Of course, the elixir of life. But I don't understand. Who... Can you think of nobody who has waited many years to return to power? Who has clung to life, awaiting their chance? It was as though an iron fist had clenched suddenly around Harry's heart. Over the rustling of the trees, he seemed to hear once more what Hagrid had told him on the night they had met. Some say he died. Codswallop, in my opinion. Don't know if he had enough human left in him to die. Do you mean, Harry croaked, that was full. And they're interrupted, of course, by the arrival of Hagrid and of Hermione. Yeah. <laughs> I see here on Twitter already. Yes. Oh, and in the YouTube chat. We're all jumping on the question. Uh, how come it's okay to use unicorn horn? How are you harvesting that unicorn horn? Um yes. Uh <laughs> Oh, and see I missed K Clark forehead shadowing is exactly what happened. Yes. Anytime Harry's scar comes into play, that is clearly forehead shadowing. <laughs> Uh, I can only imagine that uh, perhaps unicorn horns retain their efficacy after the unicorn has died, though you would still think that harvesting would be a fairly grim process, or perhaps they can be clipped. Perhaps they are nothing more than really, you know, fancy fingernails. Yeah. 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 Oh, and Jay says, "How the heck do the centaurs know Hogwarts has the philosopher's stone?" Damn it, Hagrid. (laughs) That is an interesting question, isn't it? It honestly hadn't occurred to me that Hagrid could have told the centaurs. I am so completely enamored of their their you know divinatory ability that I just assumed that they would know about it because you know I don't know Jupiter told them. (laughs) but you're right. The more mundane explanation that Hagrid has let slip his secret to yet another group of people. Yeah, yeah. Good, good, good. Yes, and Chris raises a really interesting question here about the idea of this curse itself. What is the nature of the curse? Is it a physical effect or a metaphysical one? That is profoundly interesting. It is a question that we are ill-equipped to answer. It could be, given all that we've seen of magic and how it works, it could be, you know, borderline chemical in the way that potions seem to be borderline chemical. There could be an innate, you know, magical essence contained in unicorn blood that has this particular effect on human beings. Um, But it's interesting when forensic frames it as, you know, uh, almost karmic retribution for the killing of a pure thing, Well, you have to wonder, what would happen if you purposefully and deliberately killed a unicorn without drinking its blood? What would the consequence be? Would you yourself find yourself living a half-life, cursed? It's possible. We don't really have enough to speculate at this point, but yeah, it's a a fascinating idea. It's a fascinating question. Yeah. Good. Good, 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 good. (laughs) <laughs> and Lance says, "Our Firenze was getting Harry to tell him? I think Lance is suggesting that this was all an elaborate piece of uh, of, of cold reading by Firenze here, who he happens to know that there's probably something hidden somewhere in Hogwarts, right? Yeah, good. Good, good. All right. <laughs> That's exactly the explanation, Robbie. Yes, yes, you can harvest unicorn horns without killing the unicorn it just turns the unicorn into a horse all horses are now unicorns that have had their horns harvested it's the only possible explanation and let me tell you that olivander he burns through some wands he makes a lot of wands per year the actual return on a wand per you know ounce of unicorn horn is is really low you you need a lot of the things yeah (laughs) all right Oh, Jennifer asks a really interesting question. Just to backtrack a bit, could we use the mythology that unicorns are seen as horses by adults, aka muggles? So this idea that it is a kind of innate perception magic. That is a really interesting one. That is one certainly that that has its roots in the very oldest of stories, you know. Um, at the time, it was, you know, originally, back in, uh, back in the days of the, you know, oldest oral traditions, it wouldn't have been the case that there would have been a distinction between children and adults. Children were not <laughs> necessarily thought of as innocent in that way. Innocence was instead the preserve of the virtuous, you know. It would have been the virgin who saw the unicorn for what it was. You know, only the most beauteous and, and barefooted and, and white gowned of virgins wandering the forest at night would see the unicorn for what it truly was. So there is a rich literary tradition there. We're going to have our sense of the wizard world kind of reframed very purposefully in the subsequent books of the series. Right now, though, it really does seem as though it's a different place. It's just, it's a different realm. Um, with very few exceptions we get the sense that the wizard world and the muggle world basically don't meaningfully at least interact or coexist really the dragons well the dragons and the presence well I guess the presence of the Ministry of Magic at all (laughs) and the wizards who take account of Harry back before he ever gets his letter to Hogwarts before he finds out the truth about who he is Those are really the only points of intersection that we get, you know, besides the actual, you know, thresholds themselves, either behind the Leaky Cauldron or a Platform Nine and Three Quarters. Yeah, yeah, good. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Oh, Robbie says, this passage from Bane always bothered me because he's the centaur exposition fairy. You know, I think that's a fair... That's a fair accusation, and you know, we're going to get some of that, particularly at the beginning of the next chapter. Um, Harry visits Hagrid, then he visits McGonagall while trying to visit Dumbledore, and both of them just give him, like, a discreet, you know, Lego block of exposition so that he can, he can complete the model that he's been working on and actually take meaningful action. It doesn't bother me as much because of this kind of... Because, here's the thing, Harry's in the forest. He is in this liminal state. He has moved across... Well, he's either in the liminal state or he has transited to another world entirely depending on your read of how the Forbidden Forest works. But either way, he is not tethered to Hogwarts anymore. And again, this is, you know, a rich literary tradition here of... Transiting out of the mundane realm, receiving a boon either in the form of an item or information, and then coming back—that's one of the fundamental. Uh, that's, that is actually the fundamental structural element of the hero's journey of of Joseph Campbell's monomyth. So I think we have certain parts of that here. Um, so it doesn't bother me so much, but I can completely see, yeah, yeah, that it, it is just, it is just Harry being pointed in the right direction. Though you have to wonder, would he have made the connection himself? Um, with the blazing in his forehead, would he have made the connection between this awful, crawling, Nazgul-like figure, you know, since we're making Tolkien references all over the place? Yeah. Th- there's something so awful and, and disquieting about this this cowled figure not walking across the, the clearing to feast upon the blood of the unicorn, but crawling. That is a, a particularly uh, a particularly evocative and and unsettling detail. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jennifer says innocence in the sense that they still use magic etc they aren't jaded by humanity uh well it would depend very much on 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 the kind of on the cultural context that would have validated innocence at any given time you know now in the modern world we tend to think of children as being innocent we tend to think of of youth as being uncorrupted that's the most common i would say kind of uh, transcultural read of innocence particularly you know young girls we generally think of 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 children as being innocent that wasn't always the case um it can be you know possessive of particular singular virtue it's concerning you know innocence has traditionally been locked to virginity throughout the ages both male and female virginity you know if we go back to the knight's errant if we go back to to our you know medieval heroes um there's certainly a strong connection there between innocence and purity and chastity you know yeah yeah Roby says it doesn't bother me because I have a thing for centaurs. You know, I really do. I, I love the way that this... There's something about the way that this entire passage is just elevated. There's something about... There's something about the way that this transition interacts with all the previous transitions. There's something about the way that it reframes our understanding of Hogwarts. There's something about the way that it just simply makes the universe a bigger place that I really like. Hogwarts, for all that it is sprawling, it feels... But this point in the book in particular, it feels claustrophobic. You know, we really only have a handful of locations and we kind of cycle through them again and again through the course of the book. This is something that is very new and very large. And that's, yeah, that's that's exciting to me from a world building perspective. I don't actually care about the centaurs themselves. These guys are functionally elves and I'm I'm, I'm good with that. But yeah, yeah. Good, good, good. All right. All right, we are running long. I'm going to have to really pick up pace here. I thought I'd breeze through tonight in no time at all. But now I'm talking about centaur. So that's how I'm spending my Thursday night. Um, back in Hogwarts, their detention apparently discharged. Harry and Hermione find Ron asleep in the common room. They talk over the revelation that Voldemort is still alive and their supposition still that Snape wants the Sorcerer's Stone. But they don't add any new information besides Harry's growing certainty that he is going to be killed by Voldemort's to return. Um, that is Chapter 15. And one of the things that is, is accomplished by Chapter 15 is the transition from the boarding school adventure into something else. We really are building step by step, brick by brick, threshold by threshold. We are building a darker tone. We are moving forward with more pace and, in some senses, less certainty, you know? There are points of transi- uh, transition and inflection here that are changing Harry into a different young man. Yeah. All right. So let's push into chapter sixteen. This is a long chapter by the standards of this book, but through which it's one through which we're going to move rather quickly because, as I said earlier, there's a great deal of plot and not a lot to read what i'm going to do is basically skim through the entirety of the chapter and then if we've got time we'll go back and we'll take a look at the individual moments of transition as these individual challenges are overcome but we have some building to do before we even get there we open with the final exams of the hogwarts school year which harry manages to force himself through despite the revelation about voldemort there's no mention or or little mention um at this point about his relative unpopularity with Gryffindor instead he's just completely focused on the academic side of school life as he retreats Hermione and Ron become they become less focused through him focused by him focused on him Hermione retreats more and more into the the abstractions of academia Ron retreats more and more into you know his fundamental Ron-ness without Harry there to unify them, they are less whole and complete than they are when he is there. And we'll see, of course, the fullest realization of that in the back half of this chapter. So we need some information to get us over this final hurdle. This is the exposition that I was talking about earlier. We need something to carry us all the way into our final set of thresholds. It suddenly occurs to Harry, apropos of nothing, to ask uh hagrid about the dragon dealer and it is revealed in short order that fluffy can be disarmed with music we then go to dumbledore and learn that he has been sent off to the ministry of magic by a mysterious letter thereby giving us the first, hint, the first hint excuse me of our time lock professor mcgonagall obligingly completes that and confirms everything we know so far she makes sure that the our heroes understand that they are on the right path in fact then snape warns harry off any further interference in the most ominous and malevolent way possible which, if we know anything about anything, is only going to compel Harry to double down, when they try to simply block Snape, and this is a fairly... Dissatisfying piece of furniture moving. There's a, there's a, a fairly dissatisfying piece of, of of plot scaffolding here, where they try to simply prevent Snape from making it to the Forbidden Corridor on the third floor, and they are just they're effortlessly thwarted by circumstance. But it's something that we have to try because the entire purpose of this passage, the entire purpose of the first half of this chapter, is to bring us to this point where there is no choice, no way out but through. This is our final conflict lock. And this is our slide, excuse me. Here we go. Well, that's it then, isn't it? Harry said. The other two stared at him. He was pale and his eyes were glittering. I'm going out of here tonight. I'm going to try to get the stone first. You're mad, said Ron. You can't, said Hermione. After what McGonagall and Snape have said, you'll be expelled. So what? Harry shouted. Don't you understand? If Snape gets hold of the stone, Voldemort's coming back. Haven't you heard what it was like when he was trying to take over? There won't be any Hogwarts to get expelled from. He'll flatten it, or turn it into a school for the dark arts. Losing points doesn't matter anymore, can't you see? Do you think he'll leave you and your families alone if Gryffindor wins the House Cup? If I get caught before I can get to the stone well, I'll have to go back to the Dursleys and wait for Voldemort to find me there. It's only dying a bit later than I would have, because I'm never going over to the dark side. I'm going through that trapdoor tonight, and nothing you two say is going to stop me. Voldemort killed my parents, remember? He glared at them. You're right, Harry, said Hermione in a small voice. I'll use the invisibility cloak, said Harry. It's just lucky I got it back. But will it cover all three of us, said Ron. All all three of us. Oh, come off it. You don't think we'd let you go alone? Of course not, said Hermione briskly. How do you think you'd get to the stone without us? I'd better go and look through my books. There might be something useful. But if we get caught, you two will be expelled too. Not if I can help it, said Hermione grimly. Flitwick told me in secret that I got 112% on his exam. They're not throwing me out after that. This is our conflict lock. This is the moment at which... The final shape of the conflict is decided. And I have to say, this is late in the game. The conflict lock usually starts to take shape at the beginning of the third act of the book. But this is late, and we have to build in a lot of specifics now so that we can orchestrate this whole thing. Which, from a structural point of view, is somewhat frustrating because really... The only thing that has changed since, I don't know, the middle of the book, the only thing that has changed about Harry's understanding of the Sorcerer's Stone, the Philosopher's Stone, and and the whole situation here at Hogwarts, the only thing that has changed is the revelation that Voldemort is not, in fact, dead. And let's face it, we all had a sneaking suspicion, even halfway through the book. So we could have layered some of this stuff in. We could have had the information about Fluffy presented earlier. McGonagall's just huge punishment to both Harry and Hermione and of course Neville, lest we forget Neville, McGonagall's huge punishment could have acted to dissuade them from taking any action. Their their huge and, and, and you know, weighty uh, unpopularity with the other Gryffindor children could also have urged them to not take any further action. There's all kinds of things that could have been added in to strengthen that structure and to move some of this exposition just a chapter or two or three earlier in the book. Instead, we get it all now, and you know, for all that, it's actually fairly, fairly sweet and charming. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we we all definitely. Yeah, we all definitely love uh, love Hermione in this. She's pretty great. And is going to get only greater as we push on. So, as I said, there's a great deal of plot and not a lot of substance, not a lot of literary substance from this point on. Mm. So we are going to move through this part of the book rather quickly. Um, and then, as I said, if we've got time, which we may not have, we'll go back and we'll look at the specific scenes. Uh, I have slides for all of those. So a lot of the information we've received directly and indirectly through the course of the book is now going to come into play and this is actually really rather good storytelling as much as the exposition here is awkward and 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 well if not awkward at least very swift indeed the next part of the book is going to deliver on a great deal of the the information the exposition the exploration of these characters that we've experienced through the entirety of this novel harry is shown to have achieved a certain understanding and and even, dare we say, a certain mastery of his new surroundings, even as he is forced to cross lines in the pursuit of a great, greater, greatest, probably, right? Voldemort, uh, probably the greatest good. The first such act involves the binding of Neville. Um, And this really is a strong sign that the story is, is shifting gear, that there is a new tone at play here. In the boarding school adventure story, this is the kind of thing that would be frowned upon. Indeed, specifically, this thing was frowned upon. When Malfoy used the weaker version of this spell against Neville earlier in the book, it was an absolutely unconscionable act. It was it was bordering on the cruel, but here Hermione does it. She, she binds Neville entirely. We're passing a threshold. We're moving defiantly beyond... The, the, the strictures, the restrictions of that simple story, of that boarding school adventure, into something darker, into something more adult, this is balanced with our recent experience in the Forbidden Forest. It is one thing to leave Hogwarts and to be either transitioned into a new world or to be suspended in a liminal state during your time in the Forbidden Forest. As I said, depends on your reading. It depends on your take on the interaction between these two spaces. But either way, it is one thing to go into darkness and experience something there. What we see here is that they have brought some of that darkness, some of that intensity back with them. They have brought that adult, adult, that that, that fantasy, that actual true, you know, high-stakes fantasy. They've brought some of that back from the Forbidden Forest into Hogwarts. We're changing the tone. We hit a similar note when Harry manages to bluff Peeves by impersonating the Bloody Baron. This is, it's deception, and it's a fairly kind of cold, measured, sharp-edged deception. But what we're really doing here is using the information that we've gained through the rest of the story. We are, we are leveraging Harry's personal knowledge and experience of Hogwarts at this point to do something that he hasn't managed to do before, which is get Peeves off his back. But every time we do this, every time we meet one of these transitions, every time something changes, something is different now, every time that happens, we're getting darker. You know, the, the, the tone of the book is step by step descending. We really are moving into a more... See, I hesitate to say adult, because that implies that the opposite is, is somehow infantile, somehow immature. But we're moving into just a different kind of story, a story with much larger stakes, Harry gives the others another chance to return to safety, but they refuse. Together, they face Fluffy, and Harry plays his flute, his his Christmas present from Hagrid some six months before. And there's, of course, needless to say, a nice symmetry to it being Hagrid's flute that puts uh, Fluffy to sleep. Also a nice symmetry of the three-headed beast being confronted by the three-headed beast, being confronted by the power trio, this this unified uh, triple threat, of harry and hermione and ron and of course we talked earlier about the mythic significance of circumventing cerberus and transitioning transiting to the underworld clearly you know mythic connotations there particularly after they fall and ron is convinced i think that they're they're now miles beneath hogwarts which it doesn't really seem that they could have fallen that far right conversation perhaps for another time so we move through our challenges. We move past the devil's snare. We move past the winged keys. We move past the life size wizard chest. And as I said, you know, I'm going to skip past all of this quickly so that we can see the structure of it. And that's going to inform our reading of each scene. Um, the wizard chest in which Ron falls. Then we pass by the unconscious troll. Um, and then Professor Snape's potions challenge, at which point, Hermione is left behind, leaving Harry to progress to the final challenge and, of course, the final chapter of the book. The troll, of course, is a very nice piece of foreshadowing. Um, We don't make it completely explicit in this part of the book that the troll is Quirrell's contribution to the wards surrounding the Philosopher's Stone, but it's the only one that makes sense. And when you understand that Quirrell could have coerced a troll into standing guard before the Philosopher's Stone, the quote-unquote accidental release of a troll into the basements uh, under Hogwarts starts to take on a more sinister tone. Rather like the forehead shadowing from earlier, here we have a really quite sophisticated piece of foreshadowing. This is, this is, a, this is a real chance to anticipate what is coming next, just given the information that you have. Um, and I absolutely respect the fact that J.K. Rowling plays fair with that. You know, more than once, she gives you the opportunity. If you know what's going on, or if you are smart enough to figure it out, you really can see the pieces move across the board. It's really strong. Yeah. Yeah. Pam asks, Quirrell, why did it take him so long to go after the stone? He had Fluffy's secret months ago. Yes, I think we're supposed to read two things into it. I think we're supposed to read in the first part that Voldemort has to achieve a certain amount of power before this whole thing is is functional, that, that it's useful in any way. Um, also, you know, it seems that Quirrell only just gave up, I guess this was maybe the week before, only just gave up uh, his, his final resilience, you know, his final kind of moral opposition to Voldemort's presence. Uh, and of course, we had to get rid of Dumbledore. We had to get Dumbledore out of Hogwarts. As we know, right from the beginning of this book, if there is one person in the world who can stand toe-to-toe with Voldemort, it is Albus Dumbledore. So I think that's the explanation. Yeah. <laughs> Janine says, "Holy crap! I'm so dumb. I just realized that Buffy Willow Xander fits the same power tree roles as Harry, Hermione, and Ron." Yes, I don't think that makes you dumb. I don't think that makes you dumb. The reason that this form and and you know as we've said before in previous um, in previous seminars, you know, uh, it, it fits perfectly. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy from the original Star Trek. Uh, it fits really very well though you have to remember um you have to remember that one of the facets here it's not just about about uh feeling and about you know rationality it is also about action versus you know consideration you know taking rash action versus thinking it through this is our luke leia and han solo uh power trio too you know this is a classic archetypal structure someone in the in the um someone in the youtube chat was making reference of all the things that we've discussed all the things that i've compared harry potter to i wish i could find it now oh it's back there somewhere (laughs) there are probably things that i haven't discussed um yet that match this perfectly yeah 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 yeah. firefly i don't think quite matches because there's not a core power trio um well oh damn there is No, there is a power trio, isn't there? Because Wash is Ron and Zoe is Hermione and Mal is Harry. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> so if you're if you're uh, uh, crossing these things off your bingo card, you're probably pretty close to a full house by now. Did you get a full house in bingo? I don't think I've ever actually played bingo. Revelations here on the Harry Potter seminar. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, Sarah says Harry is often the hero, but throughout the series, he's nothing without his supporting cast. That is one of the reasons that that this dynamic is so powerful. By unifying these people, and it doesn't just come in, in, in three-person variations, there's also the very common five-person variation, and it can go up to, you know, seven or even nine. Um, I, why it works best in odd numbers, I do not know. No, I do know why it works, because you have opposed pairs and then one singular fulcrum figure who is the hero himself. Um... There you go. I just figured that out. Live on the seminar. How's that? Uh, the reason that these dynamics work so well is that each individual person is elevated by their presence in the community. This relationship, as all relationships should, makes everyone involved better. One of my favorite examples of this, uh, is the TV show Leverage, which actually has a five-man band at its core, um, which is like the power trio with, with a little more, uh, distinction and delineation in, in the supporting cast roles. It's, it's very, very smart. Yeah. Um, leverage is great because it brings together these disparate characters and unifies them in a way that really makes very clear and purposeful how much better and stronger and happier they are together than they were apart. All right, I've really got to, I've really got to keep moving on here. Um, so the marked and remaining challenges. We have six marked and remaining challenges, not including the troll, which was defeated anyway. We have three that are overcome by our heroes working together. That is Fluffy, put in place by Hagrid, the Devil's Snare, put in place by Sprout, and the Winged Keys, put in place by Flitwick. Our heroes have to work together to overcome all three of those things. We then break that pattern by looking at three challenges which our heroes overcome solo. We have ron's challenge the wizard chess put in place by mcgonagall we have hermione's challenge the post potion, the potions challenge excuse me put in place by snape and finally in next week reading in next week's reading harry's final challenge which was put in place by dumbledore the archetypal symmetry of the whole thing is really quite beautiful but there was also something very crunchy about the specific way in which each challenge is overcome um When they have to work together, it takes all three of them, which is a wonderful thing. When they have to work alone, though, it isn't just about personal exceptionalism, which we might expect, given how much we've talked about personal exceptionalism in the span of this book. But when they have to work alone, it also demands a certain certain faith, a certain trust, a certain friendship from the other two or from the other one by the time we get to Hermione's challenge. My point is that no one shouts out to second-guess Ron during the, the Wizard Chess challenge. He has it handled. He knows what he's doing, and he exercises that. And while that is great for Ron, it is equally impressive that Harry and Hermione are capable of giving him that trust and agency. It's very rewarding when we see how they act in concert, even when they're acting alone. And of course... Every single challenge that we see here from, from Fluffy all the way down acts as a threshold during every single challenge our heroes are caught in a liminal space. While the challenge itself is is being undergone, they're caught in this liminal space, this, this space betwixt and between in a state of uh, of potentiality that they resolve with victory three times over and then with sacrifice three times over. It's really quite beautifully done. We'll we'll, we'll get to the, the confrontation in the final chapter next week. In the meantime, though, oh, we've got plenty of time. <laughs> oh, let me see. Garrett says, and Doctor Who has so many power trios, it's not even funny. Uh, yes, Doctor Who, the power trio is the go-to uh, build for, for modern Who in, in particular. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good. Wow. Oh, Chris has Mal, Jane, and Zoe. No, I don't think it's I don't think it's Jane because Jane is on the outs. Um, the power trio will have to be pointing in the same direction. they all have to believe. They have to be unified by that by that belief that they're greater together. And I don't think that Jane ever is. This is this is Firefly, of course, that that we're describing here. Um, I think I think yeah, Zoe definitely represents um, definitely represents consideration, rationality. And a certain degree of of tactical caution. Wash is, you know, the bleeding heart on that ship. He is, you know, um, he is the emotional core of that crew and certainly the emotional core of that power trio. And of course, Mal is our unifying. Captains are so often uh, our unifying influences, you know. This is the wonderful thing that a military hierarchy does for a story is that it gives you this whole kind of this this informal hierarchy that we have to arrive at through the course of an entire book is just given to you in in any story that deals with a, a military or you know pseudo-military hierarchy you know the reason that kirk is in charge is just that kirk is in charge the reason that picard is in charge is just that picard is in charge that's going to be true of any kind of any story that takes place at a squad level you know <laughs> there's a reason that these patterns are uh yeah, there's a reason that these patterns are so uh so frequently replicated yeah. Good, good. Oh, and Beth says, yes, that triumvirates are, are are powerful historically as well. Yes, the Roman triumvirate, of course. And, and the commonality of triumvirates in, in Greek, well, um, oh God, not even triumvirates, but, but the, the, the role of threes in Greek culture, uh, whether that's in politics or in arts or in, you know, just public life. Uh, very, very common. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're going to talk about Firefly someday very soon because, wow. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Who is calling Yahtzee? I just scrolled right past that. Maya is calling Yahtzee. I think I have, I think I referenced every single thing. Oh, did I inadvertently refer to Wash as the Bleeding Heart? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's move on. We've got our slides to look through. Um, I may not read out all of these exactly. Um, Yeah, it's 10.30 already, so we'll maybe just skip over some of these, but let's see here. So this is the moment at which we actually achieve victory um, over over our encounter with Fluffy. Not exactly victory over Fluffy per se, but certainly we resolve this first challenge, and we, we... we transitioned this first threshold. All right. Ron gritted his teeth and stepped carefully over the dog's legs. He bent and pulled the ring of the trapdoor, which swung up and open. What can you see? Hermione said anxiously. Nothing. Just black. There's no way of climbing down. We'll, we'll just have to drop. Harry, who was still playing the flute, waved at Ron to get his attention and pointed at himself. You want to go first? Are you sure? said Ron. I don't know how deep this thing goes. Give the flute to Hermione so she can keep him asleep. Harry handed the flute over. In the few seconds silence, the dog growled and twitched, but the moment Hermione began to play, it fell back into its deep sleep. Harry climbed over it and looked down through the trapdoor. There was no sign of the bottom. He lowered himself through the hole until he was hanging on by his fingertips. Then he looked up at Ron and said, If anything happens to me, don't follow. Go straight to the Owlery and send Hedwig to Dumbledore, right? Right, said Ron. See you in a minute, I hope and harry let go cold damp air rushed past him as he fell down 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 and yeah so that is how we overcome the first of our many challenges the first of the five challenges that we are going to face in this chapter the sixth coming of course next week And here we see they're all working together they are absolutely unified harry takes the decisive action harry provides that motive force he is the singular agent which is fine because this is harry's story fundamentally but it takes all of them working together all right the next one if i can somehow coerce the slide into actually advancing to the next one here we are She leapt up and struggled toward a damp wall. She had to struggle because the moment she had landed, the plant had started to twist snake-like tendrils around her ankles. As for Harry and Ron, their legs had already been bound tightly in long creepers without their noticing. Hermione had managed to free herself from the plant, uh, excuse me, had managed to free herself before the plant got a firm grip on her. Now she watched in horror as the two boys fought to pull the plant off them, but the more they strained against it, the tighter and faster the plant wound around them. Stop moving, Hermione ordered them. I know what this is. It's Devil's Snare. "'Oh, I'm so glad we know what it's called. "'That's a great help,' snarled Ron, leaning back, "'trying to stop the plant from curling around his neck. "'Shut up. "'I'm trying to remember how to kill it,' said Hermione. "'Well, hurry up. "'I can't breathe,' Harry gasped, "'wrestling with it as it curled around his chest. "'Devil's snare, devil's snare. "'What did Professor Sprout say? "'It likes the dark and the damp. "'So light a fire!' Harry choked. "'Yes, of course, but there's no wood,' "'Hermione cried, wringing her hands. "'Have you gone mad?' Ron bellowed. "'Are you a witch or not?' "'Oh, right!' said Hermione, and she whipped out her wand, waved it, muttered something, and set a jet of the same bluebell flames she had used on Snape at the plant. In a matter of seconds, the two boys felt it loosening its grip as it cringed away from the light and warmth. Wriggling and flailing, it unraveled itself from their bodies, and they were able able to pull free. "'Lucky you pay attention in herbology, Hermione,' said Harry, as he joined her by the wall wiping sweat off his face. "'Yeah,' said Ron. lucky Harry doesn't lose his head in a crisis.' There's no wood, honestly. (laughs) It's such a great scene. (laughs) I'm a big, big fan of that scene. And here we see the fundamental power between Hermione and Ron. Hermione is all about consideration. She wants to find the right solution. But when Ron urges her to action, she does the right thing. Here we see that perfect balance. It is such a great joke. And it's delivered some of that humor does play just a little flat in the book you know and and, then some of that i think is just rolling finding her voice through the course of this first book and finding these characters um but that that beat works for me absolutely yeah (laughs) oh and alan says hashtag single because i quote harry potter are you a witch or not (laughs) excellent 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 all right um So that gets us past the Devil's Snare and brings us to the third of our group challenges. This is all starting to feel a little like, I don't know, an episode of Survivor. Um, But this takes us to the third of our group challenges, the Winged Keys. They each seized a broomstick and kicked off into the air, soaring into the midst of the cloud of keys. They grabbed and snatched, but the bewitched keys darted and dived so quickly it was almost impossible to catch one. Not for nothing, though was Harry the youngest seeker in a century. He had a knack for spotting things other people didn't. After minutes weaving about through the whirl of rainbow feathers, he noticed a large silver key that had a bent wing, almost as if it had been caught and stuffed roughly into the keyhole. That one, he called to the others. That big one, there, no, there, with bright blue wings. The feathers are all crumpled on one side. Ron went speeding in the direction that Harry was pointing, crashed into the ceiling and nearly fell off his broom. We've got to close in on it, Harry called, not taking his eyes off the key with the damaged wing. Ron, you come at it from above. Hermione, stay below and stop it from going down, and and I'll try to catch it right now. Ron dived. Hermione rocketed upward. The key dodged them both, and Harry streaked after it. It sped toward the wall. Harry leaned forward and with a nasty, crunching noise, pinned it against the stone with one hand. Ron and Hermione's cheers echoed around the high chamber. They landed quickly and Harry ran to the door, the key struggling in his hand. He rammed it into the lock and turned. It worked. The moment the lock had clicked open, the key took flight again, looking very battered now that it had been caught twice. Not for nothing, though, was Harry the youngest seeker in a century. I, I'm a big fan of these points of transition where we, we come back out to that narrative voice. It happens so rarely um after the beginning of the book but i'm a big fan of that um and again here we see you know harry is exceptional harry's quidditch skill in particular is exceptional but even here it needs all three of them to succeed in this task which is also doing something very clever in terms of of making us feel a sense of foreboding for what lies ahead you know now we've had three challenges that could over, only be overcome by our three heroes working in concert now we're going to start losing heroes, all before the final confrontation. Yes, Lee asks in the YouTube chat. These keys can't feel pain, can they? I know it's it's a little it's a little rough, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it is. What a cursed life they lead, you know. Given wings and the power to fly and then locked away in a tiny little cavern. <laughs> Yes, you have to love too that that you know the challenge to get past this particular trial, you know, to 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 circumvent Professor Flitwick's uh, ward to protect the the Philosopher's Stone. You just have to be really good at sports, you know. This is like in the real world. This would be you have to I don't know hit a home run or or I don't know <laughs> drive a golf ball three hundred and fifty yards. There has to be some kind of uh, a muggle equivalent, you know all right let's keep moving on we have two more to get through um this is uh the climax of the wizard chess sequence we're nearly there he muttered suddenly let me think let me think the white queen turned her blank face toward him yes said ron softly it's the only way i've got to be taken no harry and hermione shouted that's chess snapped ron You've got to make some sacrifices. I make my move and she'll take me. That leaves you free to checkmate the king, Harry. But do you want to stop Snape or not? Ron, look, if you don't hurry up, he'll already have the stone. There was no alternative. Ready, Ron called, his face pale but determined. Here I go. Now, don't hang around once you've won. He stepped forward and the White Queen pounced. She struck Ron hard across the head with her stone arm and he crashed to the floor. Hermione screamed but stayed on her square. The White Queen dragged Ron to one side. He looked as though he'd been knocked out. Shaking, Harry moved three spaces to the left. The White King took off his crown and threw it at Harry's feet. They had won. The chessmen parted and bowed, leaving the door ahead clear. With one last desperate look back at Ron, Harry and Hermione charged through the door and up the next passageway. Great moment for Ron. Absolutely a great moment for Ron um and you know a, a great exploration of this idea of sacrifice you know <laughs> even in this moment of course we have ron sacrificing himself so that harry can checkmate the king you know this is this is as above so below plotting that we've got here we're seeing this this same echoing structure here yeah i'm sure that someone has charted all the moves in this this wizard chess game but yeah oh er lamp on twitter says i think jkr said once that she seriously considered killing ron if she had this would have been strong foreshadowing um yes one of the consequences of the power trio structure one of the consequences of this character dynamic is that the ron character is oftentimes vulnerable uh if you're going to kill one of them it's usually going to be the the uh The pathos character for obvious reasons yeah yeah good 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 if each barrier this comes from mcgiggle cutie on twitter if each barrier represents the professor who set it up who or what did mcgonagall transform into chess pieces it's an interesting question yeah because of course it's you know mastery of transmutation perhaps she's simply uh you know, enchanted a regular wizard chess set and, and, and sized it up a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Last one. Here we go. This is our last uh, confrontation for this evening, and then we'll get to the final confrontation on Tuesday. Got it, she said. The smallest bottle will get us through the black fire toward the stone. Harry looked at the tiny bottle. There's only enough there for one of us, he said that's hardly one swallow. They looked at each other. Which one will get you back through the purple flames? Hermione pointed at the rounded bottle at the right end of the line. You drink that, said Harry. No, listen, get back and get Ron. Grab brooms from the flying key room, they'll be able to get you out of the trapdoor and past Fluffy. Go straight to the Allery and send Hedwig, send Hedwig to Dumbledore, we need him. I might be able to hold Snape off for a while, but I'm no match for him, really. But Harry, what if you know who is with him? Well, I was lucky once, wasn't I? said Harry, pointing at his scar. I might get lucky again. Hermione's lip trembled, and she suddenly dashed at Harry and threw her arms around him. Hermione! Harry, you're a great wizard, you know. I'm not as good as you, said Harry, very embarrassed as she let go of him. Me, said Hermione. Books and cleverness. There are more important things. Friendship and bravery and... Oh, Harry, be careful. You drink first, said Harry. "'You are sure which is which, aren't you?' "'Positive,' said Hermione. She took a long drink from the round bottle at the end and shuddered. "'It's not poison,' said Harry anxiously. "'No, but it's like ice. "'Quick, go before it wears off. "'Good luck. Take care. Go!' Hermione turned and walked straight through the purple fire. Harry took a deep breath and picked up the smallest bottle. He turned to face the black flames. "'Here I come,' he said, and he drained the little bottle.' In one gulp. A great moment, I think, and a great interaction, a personal interaction between Harry and Hermione, and an exploration of one of the themes of the book that there are more important things than books and cleverness. There's even more important things than being a great wizard friendship and bravery. The two virtues that Harry has embodied perhaps more than any other, and the two virtues that are held in the highest esteem, though albeit one more than other, we see bravery held up as the great Gryffindor trait, but in practice we see friendship. In practice we see unity. These are the traits that have united our power trio, that have allowed them to overcome all of these challenges, that have allowed them to get to this place, to arrive here at the climax of the book. And we have this wonderful hanging cliffhanger as we we close out this chapter when we discover that it's not Snape on the other side. It's not even Voldemort. We'll get to all of that, though, next week. Let Let me come back to you all here so I can see exactly what you've been saying. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, good. Uh, chris says wait a second someone has already drunk from the small bottle tonight right yeah i wasn't sure about that either um i'm not sure if there were two small bottles i'm not sure if there was only enough left for one swallow i don't know exactly how harry is so confident that a swallow is the appropriate dose of potion um we're a little kind of potions work in harry potter mostly due to narrativium they they are fueled by by the narrative necessity to do exactly what is required at the moment so um yeah yeah Oh no we're getting we're getting problems with the feed Oh that is a terrible thing hopefully this won't uh We're back we picked up Okay good <laughs> It would be entirely typical it would be entirely appropriate for my feed to just collapse now under this whole thing Yeah yeah Good good Yeah it would be interesting I mean, the thing is, it's such a weird challenge anyway. Um, and yeah. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure how it works. We just kind of have to take it on faith that it does. But I like Harry sending Hermione back. I like the instructions to go and rescue Ron. I like the instructions. I like the, 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 the trust and the respect that he shows her. Um, that, that It's a really sweet interaction, I think. Yeah. Good. Good, good. All right. So next Tuesday night, we are going to wrap up our our entire coverage of the book with the final chapter. And then, of course, we're going to talk about the book as a whole. We are going to kind of move all the way back through it and reframe this narrative. We are going to pick up all of those questions into which we stuck pins. Back at the beginning of this seminar series. All these questions of protagonism and agency and conflict. Whose story is this? We're going to address all of that next week. Uh, We're also going to address any lingering thematic or symbolic concerns that we may have. If you've got ideas, if you've got questions, then bring them next Tuesday night. The following Sunday, which I think is the 24th... um, at 2 p.m. Eastern, we are going to meet once more, one final time for Harry Potter, and we're going to talk about the movie adaptation. I'm basically going to move through the movie and explain why it's a a horrifying disaster um, of a film. Not in as much as it's not enjoyable. Um, it can be diverting. It can be engaging. It is great to see some of our favorite scenes represented right there on the screen. Um... But as an adaptation and as a story, it falls somewhat catastrophically at the first hurdle. Um, so we're going to talk about that uh, on that Sunday. And then we'll do another little another little wrap up right there. We'll, we'll do another little Q&A. And then we will reconvene in due course for the uh, next seminar book. I don't know exactly when that is going to be. I haven't scheduled anything just yet. The voting for the next seminar book concludes on Monday night at midnight, and I will announce the winner on Tuesday. It's almost certainly going to be Pride and Prejudice at this point, though I will say Mort by Terry Pratchett has has really uh, started to catch up in the last few days. There's been a lot of new votes. Pride and Prejudice is now down to about 50% of the vote, which is uh, a low point since the voting started. It's really... Quite impressive. Uh, <laughs> so let me uh put up this final slide with our uh with our details for next week. Next week, He Who Must Not Be Named, Chapter 17 of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, and like I said, a, a QA wrap-up um Yes, uh, Sarah on on uh, Sarah on Twitter says the first Harry Potter movie is my go-to to explain why a faithful adaptation doesn't mean a good adaptation. That is entirely entirely true. That first Harry Potter movie is incomprehensible if you do not already know the book. That said, if you do know the book, there are things to like, there are things to enjoy, and I think that the performances by the children, in particular are so much better than than we had any right to expect. So so there are going to be good things. It's not just going to be a hatchet job for 90 minutes. We're, we're going to uh, celebrate the things that are worthy of celebration too. Oh, and to clarify if Pride and Prejudice should happen to win the... Um, the vote on Monday night, if I announce as the winner on Tuesday night. Uh, we'll take a few weeks off after the end of the Harry Potter seminar. We may be trying something slightly different for the, the Pride and Prejudice seminar, but that will automatically earn the second place book a spot on the next vote, too. We have some really interesting ideas for, for books for the next vote. Um, there's a good chance that we might be seeing some American gods. There's a good chance that we might be seeing... I'm thinking strongly about uh, the Mayor of Casterbridge by Thomas Hardy, one of my particular favorites. There are a bunch. There's a huge, huge list. So, we're going to be doing uh, we're going to be doing these seminars for quite some time, guys. I hope that you're enjoying them. <laughs> All right, let's wrap that up. That is it for tonight. Thank you so much for your company. Thank you so much for your time. I will be back on Tuesday with more. Until then, take care. Bye.